UMass fans on your tweets and make some noise for your podcaster. I never got over being 10 in 1996. Well, can you believe what's going on in the Atlantic 10 today? I remember when Penn State was in the Atlantic 10. (laughs) I think I'd rather die in nuclear war than go to Olean. (laughs) Okay, we are back. My name is Curry Hicks Sage, and this is episode 11 of the still unnamed UMass Basketball Podcast. I'm coming to you live from New York City. Joining me, as always, in Boston is my co-host, Andrew Callagy, a.k.a. A. Callagy on Twitter. That's two L's, A-G-Y, C-A-L-L-A-G-Y, a.k.a. A. Callagy for longtime listeners of the program. And coming to us from Long Island tonight, where I believe he's posted up at his folks' house uh, over the holidays, none other than our dynamic and talented producer, the Bennett Carroll. Check him out on Twitter, as always, Bennett Carroll, with a K. Is it? Is it with a, it's with a K, B-E-N-N-E-T? Two T's. Two T's, K-A, two R's. O two L's. I'm looking at it right now. K R O L L. So oh, one R. Man, that's a tough name. All right, well, check him out. Just reached a thousand followers. That's big time. Shout out to Bennett. Okay, so let's jump right in. This has been a busy week, and we're gonna have a really great guest on tonight who covers Dayton for his own sort of Dayton fan site, and also has a podcast. He's really great. He's breaking down the flyers, but. The week that was, was not exactly a good one. UMass headed up to Olean, New York on Saturday, and and they got pretty much crushed 98-78 to those who did not see it, which is just about no one who's listening to this podcast. The reality is St. Bonaventure played well. They're one of the two best teams in the Atlantic 10. They showed everyone why. And when one of the two best teams in the Atlantic 10 is at home and plays really, really, really well, even by the standards of a really quality team, UMass just isn't going to win that game pretty much no matter what they do. Throw in a few mistakes and a couple early Luan Pipkins fouls, and you kind of knew that this probably just wasn't going to be our day. The guys scrapped and played hard in the first half, cut the lead, even retook the lead briefly about midway through. But ultimately, second half, Jalen Adams, Matt Mobley, two senior guards went absolutely off. They combined for 60, not a misquote, 60 points. And Bonaventure ran away with a pretty easy win that, frankly, could have been a lot higher than the 20-point margin. Not, not a lot higher, but it, 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 was, it, was, uh, it was not exactly 20 going away. It was like 20 with UMass kind of making it a little more respectable down the stretch and cutting it to 16 or 17 late. Um, I'll have some thoughts in a moment, but I want to bring Cal in to sort of get his, his takes overall on the Bonaventure game that was. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, it was just from the opening tip and I know that UMass uh, did a really good job in the first half with about like, you were right around the 12 to 10 minute mark, um, making it a game. And I think it was right around like 25, 25 ish um, where they had come, come back from like down, you know, 12 or 14 early, but you could just see it right off the jump. Just the Barneys were way more athletic. They had a, a, an extra gear that I don't think UMass was able to really get too much um, in that game. It's funny to say that you know when when UMass scores seventy eight points that 
the defense for St. Bonaventure kind of jumped off the table. The, the very first thing that kind of, you know, jumped off, jumped off the page or the TV screen for, for me was just, they were harassing Pipkins on every single pick and roll. And the bigs for Bonnie's were doing a hell of a job getting out and hedging, um, making his life uncomfortable. They were not helping at all off of Carl Pierre. There was somebody within three to four feet of him at all times. If some three if, to four inches, it felt yeah, like. If 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 Pipkins was driving to the hoop and you know, high school basketball conventional wisdom is that the wing player, the wing defender helps out on the driver from the top of the key. If the if that guy was covering Carl Pierre, he was not moving. And that's why Pipkins, you know, he kind of did get to the hoop a, a good amount in the first half. Um but yeah, it was just uh, it, it was it was startling to see the talent disparity. Um, you mentioned Mobley and Adams. I mean, there's not much more you can say about them. I mean, they they're you know URI is an unbelievable backcourt, and the Bonnies. I just think they're those two guys are are so damn talented. I'd probably take them. Um, I would take them any, over over anybody over the roadie starters for sure. Yeah, I maybe not I, overall, I but have, yeah, I think you have to. And it's just they're so damn good, and the rest of the team. Plays really hard. So, um, yeah, I just think it was expected loss. Uh, I think the 20-point margin was a little uh, disappointing. Uh, I think UMass lost a lot of focus in the second half defensively. Uh, they just weren't in the game as much. And um, I think Pipkins even Pipkins and Malik Hines, I think, even said as much after the game. But, yeah, those are my initial thoughts. I'm curious to hear what you have to say. Yeah, so kind of like I'm going to try to break down in you know three to five quick takeaways that I wrote out in advance of this one. I think we're going to try to do do that with opponents, particularly as we get guests on the show, and, and there's a lot to talk about. So I want to try to break it down fairly quickly. But my, my core thoughts are, are this, and I said a little bit of it on Twitter, but didn't have a ton ton of time to reflect. So what, what I got is this. I got you can't beat upper-tier Atlantic 10 basketball teams without really adept guards who can put the ball on the floor. And to do that, too much. He was just trying to put the ball on the floor too much. I think he went five. It was just the sort of gratuitous dribbling that that showed, and it, 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 he got exposed to a degree. And it, it's not. I don't want to say it's CJ's fault. It's just right now when you have a, a roster that doesn't have a ton of weapons in the backcourt, CJ Anderson is going to be dribbling the ball a ton at St. Bonaventure when Luan Pipkins picks up two fouls, and it just those were so critical in that. You know, the whole floor, you see more of that kind of Kellogg era-like clutter when Ke- when Pip is not on the floor. And that's compounded, you know, where just things get bunched together like a, you know, a under nine soccer youth soccer team in the lane. It just gets clogged and there's no space. And, and CJ ends up kind of taking these kind of errant runners and various other shots. There's just not a ton of other options because... Pierre was shadowed and scouted super well, and Pip wasn't on the floor. Uh, you know, as I said, you know, my points here, I'm, I'm looking at my notes here, and it just says, you know, Bonnet did a great job not letting Pierre get touches and early foul trouble to Pippins made it so that CJ and Unique were our four ball handlers. That's not a pretty proposition. And, you know, I mean, McLean had those two nice buckets off of misses early, but or the dunk off of, a you know, that nice dunk early. But other than that, he really struggled too. Uh, other thoughts were really that, Bonnie couldn't really play much better than that. I mean, yes, some of it's on us, but mostly that's a Bonaventure win. Adams and Mobley were hitting everything. They ran absolutely gorgeous sets all night that just led to their bigs getting these wide-open mid-range jumpers that they consistently nailed, which is not something they did against Syracuse, and they still beat Syracuse on the road while not shooting well. So you imagine 
now that those guys shoot well and they're at home against UMass. I mean, it's it was a, it was kind of a perfect storm. They did just about everything right. Holloway can't stay on the damn court, and no, that's a, that's a huge one, man. It's just he, he he's really playing well. I mean, I I don't think like I think well, they're going to get him in the two seconds he's in. I right? Mean, <laughs> it's just it's yeah, it's really frustrating. It's getting frustrating because he played eleven minutes, and I think yeah. against Maine he played like ten. And 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 what I don't get is. Okay, I know he picked up a third foul there early in the second half, which was kind of a bullshit call. It was he, he frankly got away with one, I think, earlier and kind of ended up scoring instead. And then the next time down, I was like, I said on Twitter, I'm like, watch the foul coming. As, yep. you know, like clockwork, he picks it up. And then did he even play the rest of the night? I mean, that was at like 16, that was at like 17, 17 and a half. He may not have. Um, I don't I know can, if he went back in. I mean, maybe yeah. very late. I can try and look it up as as you as you talk here, but yeah, no, I mean he. It's just, it, I just he's he's clearly bigger than he was last year. I don't think anyone would deny that, um, and it doesn't seem as though he's getting the benefit of the whistle at all. But he also is putting himself in bad spots. But he's committing. I want to say this: Rayshon Holloway in years past, I would always say this is a guy who picks up more phantom foul calls because guys just bounce off him than any player I've ever seen. So when right. he was averaging 17, 18 minutes last year, I genuinely had a certain level of sort of empathy and compassion because I was like, this kid is picking up fouls for just putting his hands up in the air and doing nothing. This yeah. year, it feels like on many occasions, and I wish I had you know, cited these instances in advance of the show or had tape to prove it but it feels like he gets gassed and almost wants to come out of the basketball game and yeah. just commits like he'll commit a foul i think the one he committed on saturday or maybe it was against maine but he literally just came out you know to a shooter like 17 18 feet from the hoop and just sort of hit him like for no reason you know i yeah. mean oh yeah the, the shooting foul that's right that was the one that i was like what are you doing and and, and yeah, I'm totally with you on this, by the way. Like, this is kind of why I'm so frustrated with him because I, I do, I do think that he is he's putting himself in bad in bad places this year. Where in the years past, I don't think he was as much. He knows what he's doing. It's like he yeah. gets in, he dominates the start of a second half in this one. He scores, you know, back to back buckets. I think he gets fouled. You know, he he, he ends up all, every game. It feels like he ends up shoot, you know, four for five and you know nine points, and, and it's right. like. It's not like McCall doesn't want him to get more touches. It, it's 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 really not um, because Bonaventure did not have the bigs to compete defensively against UMass and and Malik Hines to his eternal credit was six for seven was for sixteen points. He was basically dominant every time he touched the ball and had a bunch of offensive boards. There's no reason Holloway, who has frankly a better touch and probably better footwork around the rim, shouldn't have been doing the same. It's just. It's uh, he's just gassed. He's out of shape, and it's it's completely apparent. And I I, I keep hoping it's going to get better. And I just it it hasn't yet. I said I'll wait three games into the Atlantic Ten season, but this next week is going to tell us a lot about where he is for the really for the duration of the year. Uh, my final thoughts on the game were, oh, Chris Baldwin. Sometimes, man, oh my God, does he drive me insane? I mean, he's got so much talent, so much athleticism, but just takes possessions off, jacks up an early three or two. There was a critical stretch where UMass had somehow scrounged their way back and cut the lead to five. C.J. Anderson went to the line 
missed a free throw, a one and one opportunity, I believe. So, you know, you were hoping to cut it to three. And then Baldwin just commits like the most mind numbingly dumb foul on a rebound. And it was just like, dude, like, there's no reason you should be anywhere near that play committing a foul. It was like, I want to say it was like an errant miss to like the three point line extended. And he just, it was just, and, and he did one or two other things like that. And and maybe I'm being unfair. If I watch the tape, I could, and, and more, more rationally, I could, I could uh, rein it in, but it just feels like it is a body language thing that, you know, maybe statistically it's not provable. And I, but it feels like there are just these moments where you just kind of see this, like, it's almost as if he's shrugging. It's almost like, eh, I don't know if I want to try this time down. And it's like, you really need him in a game like that to be, and he, you know, he makes spectacular rebounds. He does these nice things, but it just feels like when he takes a possession off, it's so noticeable. And it was noticeable again in this one. And I look back, I think, and partly as, as my last, which is my last point, somehow it's amazing. I looked the stats up. UMass actually out rebounded Bonnie on offense, fifth, uh, offensive rebounds, fifteen to fourteen. But I'd love to see a stat on how many second chance points Bonna got because it felt like there were several occasions on which Bonna came down with a fifty-fifty ball off a miss and just buried a back-breaking three. And when you give a team like that second chance opportunities, there's no way you're staying in the game because if they miss the first shot, okay, great, but they're not going to miss a second. And that Mark Schmidt. Mark Schmidt is just the, – the sets they were running were absolutely masterful. They would get open look after open look on really complicated tons of screening that I just was like, holy shit, how are they doing this? If you don't get rebounds after that, like you're you're just shooting you're, – you're just killing yourself. So those are my thoughts on the Bonner game. Yeah, they were putting, they were putting uh, Mobley and, and Adams in position to get – like off of like flare screens and different types of um, like baseline cuts. It was just, it was really impressive. They had a ton of sets and it was, I mean, it, it flummoxed uh, the UMass defense for sure. But um, yeah, I think that's, that's about it. It's not, not much more you can really say. Okay, it is my great pleasure at this time to introduce for the evening on the still unnamed UMass Basketball Podcast. He is really an expert on all things Dayton. He blogs for the site Blackburn Review, and his name is Sully. Sully, you can check him out on Twitter at Sully, my good name. A very original screen name, one of the better voices in the conference. We've been exchanging tweets for, uh, you don't even know, a year or two now. Really glad to finally get him on the show. Sully is coming to us tonight from Chicago, and welcome to the program. What's going on, guys? Glad to be here. Uh, definitely two years worth of exchanging tweets. It's uh, good to finally be on the podcast, and we talked about it for a while, and it was like, well, you know, we'll just do it when Dayton actually plays UMass. So the time is upon us. We're here. We are here, and you know, I had a bunch of prepared questions, but then 
I was leaving work a little late and I took a look at the line that was released for your game tomorrow night against St. Bonaventure. And before I even get into the UMass questions, I have to tell you, I immediately texted a friend who lives in Las Vegas and is actually a professional sports gambler. He's really the real deal. And I've been feeding him A10 nuggets uh, for a couple of years now. And been pretty good because that's the only thing I could ever be decent at betting wise. And I told him, and I never say this, I say this two or three times a year that I had identified a five star pick, you know, a lock of mortal locks, the kind of pick you come up with once every year or two. And that frankly, I may bet on, even though I only bet these days once every year or two with that 1.5 minus one. Point five for that Bonaventure team that I saw the other night against you guys. Now we're going to get into your roster. We're going to get into you know your struggles this year. What the fuck am I missing? It seems like that is the. I know Dayton's a tough place to play, but like, am I crazy here to bet my my house on this? Um, no, I actually just got off the phone with my guy at Fidelity Investments uh, before I jumped on the podcast, and he dumped my savings account into my checking account so that I could roll that um, over to my bookie tomorrow morning. So um, <laughs> glad to hear that everybody's on the same page, and and you know money's the the number one thing on our minds. You know we we got to put basketball aside sometimes for the the greater good. But seriously. And this is, I guess, I guess a convenient segue to talk about the Flyers. You guys have done nothing on paper that would nothing. suggest even at home you are a six point within six with these guys. And and like it may happen. You know, I mean shit happens. You may come out tomorrow and play your game of the year and Bonnie may have a letdown after playing phenomenally against both UMass and Syracuse and covering both those games, by the way, by you know, they were a six and a half point underdog at Cuse. They won by three, so nine and a half point cover. And then they were 11 and a half against UMass, and they won by 20. So back to back coverages by nine and a half points. And now they're only a one and a half point favorite against an inferior Dayton team. And I know Dayton's a tough place to play, but so is Syracuse. So is the Carrier Dome. Yeah. So. I mean, Dayton's not a tough place to play right now. Like, fucking Penn just beat us. And it's like. Okay, yeah, uh, Dayton historically was a tough place to play, but that was when our teams were good. You know, that was when we were competitive going to the tournament. Um, I will say that a lot of what you see in that Vegas line predicates on the history of the rivalry, um, which is in the last 15 years, uh, sorry, 16 seasons, Dayton is 17-2 and two against Bonaventure. But with wow. that in mind, yeah, I mean, wow. it's, it's, it's a pretty serious amount of domination. Um, but uh, to that same point, two seasons ago, Bonaventure came to the arena and beat us with virtually the same team. I mean, you know, Mobley and Adams were there. So no, Adams was uh, was uh, sitting out that year, actually. Uh, no, Mobley would have been sitting out. So Adams would have. I'm oh, sorry, right? Mobley would have sitting out. Yeah, yeah Adams okay. was there. Mobley would have been sitting out. And and Adams scored like uh, he scored 35 in the arena last year. So I mean, the kid like can play no matter what, and, and I think we all know that. But um. You know, to answer your question, I really have no idea what that line is. I think the Flyers have got a lot of questionable lines. Um, you know, Auburn was even like a really small favorite. And I remember talking to some guys that were like, 
I know I love the Flyers, but I can't lay off this. I can't remember what it was specifically. And, you know, Auburn, like, more than covered the line. Now they're 13-1 and or 12-1 and or whatever it is. Um, so, yeah, the Flyers have been getting a lot of respect on – uh, on paper from Vegas for whatever reason. I'm really not sure why. Um, I guess that might be a segue into talking about all the things they do poorly, but how much time do you guys have? <laughs> well, we're going to get to that in a moment. And But here's my first question, basically, you know, now that we're into all this, and Cal, jump in in a moment, but I just had that little opening rant that I had to get off my chest. Of course. It's been it's been a long off season for you guys in much or was a long off season, I should say, in much the same way it was for us. Coaching change, loss of a bunch of players in your case to graduation, whereas in ours, it was just to transfers. Um, and ultimately, you know, Archie goes to Archie Miller goes to Indiana and you hire Anthony Grant, the former VCU coach who was successful at VCU, then bounced to Alabama, kind of struggled in the SEC as kind of most coaches do who go to Alabama, bounced back to uh, be an assistant with uh, Billy Donovan. So it was actually, he has a lot of ties to Matt McCall. Uh, which we will talk about probably later on the show. Uh, and then he p- got the job at Dayton. I have to say, I was shocked. Initially, when I heard the hire, I was just like, it was kind of head-scratching in that you guys had been to four straight tournaments. You you know, you have 13,000-plus fans at every game. And Anthony Grant, you know, while he's had a good pedigree with VCU, VCU wasn't an A-10 team at the time. And then he ultimately didn't really get it done in, in Alabama. And I just thought you would get somebody a little more dynamic than kind of a high major retread. I then realized he's an, he's an alum and that obviously is a factor, but walk us through a little bit, the coaching search in the off season and kind of, um, you know, was he the logical successor? I I was sort of surprised to even see his name come up. I guess it makes sense because he's an alum, but just walk us through the whole coaching search and um, you know, where the fan base was, you know, hoping to go or, or, you know, uh, just how he, how you ended up with Grant. Yeah, sure. And, um, much like the UMass coaching search, uh, this summer after the, you know, Pat Kelsey incident of 2017, um, it it was quick, you know, they wanted to get it done as fast as they could. Um, and especially in UMass's case, because they kind of, you know, got egg on their face the first time. And Dayton was kind of in that same realm where they were like, we can't screw this up because, you know, there was always that inkling that Archie was probably going to leave, but you couldn't like hang your hat on it. And then, you know, sure enough, um, it ended up happening. So, you know, Dayton wanted to do it really quick. Um, From the inside, you know, names I heard, guys around the newsroom in Dayton, um, uh, John Gross uh, was interviewed, which I was vehemently against. I wanted him nowhere. The guy who got fired from Illinois? Yeah, yeah, he was. Former Ohio coach, former Ohio coach. 100% interviewed for the Dayton job. And as soon as I heard that, I was like, get that guy out away from campus as quick as you can. I don't want anything to do with him. Um, we heard Ron Hunter's name come up. Uh, if you remember him from, from yeah. Georgia state, he just and, beat uh, us <laughs> and almost beat you. Oh yeah, that's right. You guys played him too. Yeah. Yeah. I totally yeah. forgot about that. Um, yeah. See it. You could see, I haven't done a roundup in a couple of weeks. Um, so yeah, Ron Hunter's name came up. Uh, and then, you know, other than that, I, they interviewed the, um, the assistants on Archie's staff, uh, I believe Kewick, uh, Kevin Kewick, and then Tom Ostrom. Uh, Ostrom was more of a player's guy. Uh, Kewick handled a lot of the day-to-day from what I understand, but both of those guys were interviewed. Um, and then it ended up that um, you know, one went to Syracuse and then one tagged along with uh, with Archie um, you know, down there at Indiana. So um, 
But you know, I got to tell you guys from the search and everything that I heard, Grant was a front runner from the minute the coaching search opened up, and I think the reason was he was interested immediately as soon as they gave him a call. Um, no matter what, he was going to be a hire that wouldn't be scorned. It wouldn't necessarily be praised right. highly, but nobody right. was going to be like, oh, my God, you did what? Yeah. Um, so, you know, it was a safe candidate in that play. Um, if you guys don't know, if the UMass listeners don't know, you know, Dayton is driven heavily by the finances of very old alumni who have been in the arena for a very, very long time. So having an alumni as a coach is something that we basically haven't had since the glory days. Um, so that's something that's you know very important, uh, especially because we went through a couple of coaches that were really bad. You know, we went through Jim O'Brien in the early '90s, who um, set the program back you know a decade. Um, so in that regard, I think there was a, a large faction of the fan base that wanted the pick to be safe, um, but we also didn't necessarily want to go out and take a chance on a guy because, like you said, you know we are an established program. Um, but in that same light, we're not a major program. You know, we're not Xavier as much as we want to be. Um, we're not Wichita State. We're not Gonzaga. Um, and those are kind of the, the cream of the crop. And, and Dayton is just kind of one important step below there. Um, and unfortunately, you guys know how you get to that next step. And it's getting to the tournament consistently. So um, to kind of wrap up, you know, the whole thought here, uh, I felt that the administration went out and they did – exactly what they had to do and they didn't necessarily take a chance but they didn't set themselves up to be criticized either um i'll finish with saying that the one thing i think that's scaring a lot of people in the fan base is that anthony grant might be here for a couple extra years past uh when they should show him the door because he's an alumni um and i think that's something we've believe me (laughs) yeah and you guys know that that's exactly why i brought up we know we know we know that game uh probably about two two years uh extra than than what we thought but um sully so i was always super impressed with archie um you know especially going i went down the a10 tournament a couple different years and i just thought that the dayton teams were incredibly well prepared um on both ends of the floor they played super hard and just 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 a good well-coached basketball team um what are the differences in styles between what Archie did for you guys and what Anthony Grant has done uh, thus far in terms of, um, you know, style is, is it like, a, you know, what kind of defense is he playing? And it seems like it's a very low temp, like um, slow down type of game. You guys are, I think in the 300s, 304 in tempo. Um, so it seems like it's much slower than what you're playing under Archie, but just get into some of the differences between the two coaches so far. Oh yeah, absolutely, man. The tempo is exactly where I was going to start. Um, you know, right now there's only like I think I just read about this today in an article. There's only like 70 teams that play slower than we do in Division One, um, which means you know they're 80 percent of teams in Division One are, are going to play uh, a faster pace than us, which is an astounding number. Um, but that that's kind of where we can start, and I can segue that into saying the the fast break uh, is what I miss the most about Archie Miller coach teams. We ran a fast break under him better than I've ever seen any Dayton team run it, and and it was you know kind of the personnel. Uh, Kyle Davis, one of those guys where that was exactly what he was looking to do all the time. And Archie had some guys that learned how to rebound and and do the Bill Walton, you know, kick it out immediately and get that fast break going. So. I think that's that's number one what I miss. Um, aside from that, the poor free throw shooting stuck around. Dayton still can't really shoot worth a damn from the free throw line. Um, 
but you know this year it's really tough to just sit here and be like here's the differences between the two teams because we did get accustomed to a certain style with Archie Miller but the thing I have to keep pausing with is really criticizing the overall scheme of Anthony Grant 13 games into his career with a group of guys he inherited um said you know you guys kind of the same thing this year with Matt McCall and it seems like you know he's starting to build confidence in the fan base that this is going in the right direction Uh, but Anthony Grant hadn't necessarily done that and I think really without saying the differences the thing that I can tell you guys right now is that people are frustrated with the obvious glaring um, aspect of Dayton's game right now is that they're not getting the ball to Josh Cunningham enough. He's one of the best players in the conference. He's scoring at one of the most efficient rates in the country. Um, he's shooting the ball really well, and we're just not getting him the ball enough. And, and so I think people are getting very frustrated and saying, well, what what is Anthony Grant's scheme here? Are, are we running the flex offense? Are we you know, just kind of like playing around in the mud till we figure out what everybody's skill set is? Um, I think there's just a lot of questions to be answered. So, you know, I didn't not that I'm like skating around the answer, but I think it's really hard to nail down like, okay, this is what an Anthony Grant team at Dayton looks like. And I hope that makes sense to you guys. I don't know how much Dayton you've watched this year. No, that, that makes complete sense. I, I watched you guys a bit against Mississippi State and maybe highlights of other games. And it, it did seem like there was a kind of a fluctuation between transition ball and kind of half court stuff. I couldn't, I couldn't, there was that, you're right. There was not a, and that was just one game and there, there was not a, coherence to how uh, he wanted to play and I I don't think that's uncommon um, among first-year coaches who inherit guys but what does he how does he say he wants to play because you know the the just as a guy who's getting over still getting over the Kellogg years Derek Kellogg would say a lot he would say you know I just want to play UMass basketball and UMass fans you know listening to this will chuckle because what does that mean that really that really meant nothing ultimately it meant like let me get some athletic players and roll the ball out and hope that they can push tempo, which was cool when you would go on a 17-0 run, which happened a lot, but then the rest of the game was just maddening half-court nothingness and, you know, into the abyss. And so UMass basketball, by definition, was this awesome display of, like, fast-break, up-tempo stuff for four minutes and then just nothing in the half-court the rest of the way. And, and it was just ultimately an empty, you know, uh, cliche phrase that came to signify nothing. So if, yeah. if you had to say, is it so is it is it so I just be cautious, like, is there something that he says he wants Dayton basketball to be ultimately? No, and I think that's honestly like what has been most frustrating for people is that we can't seem to nail down, you know, what the hell is the identity of the Dayton team right now? You know, they have a lot of guys on the floor that are talented and bring a lot of different skill sets, but I I still have yet to understand what is this Dayton team, you know, besides Josh Cunningham. I mean, he's leading the conference in rebounds. Like I said, I think he's the second most efficient scorer. Um, And and it's like, you know, we have this star. He's not getting enough shots. To give you guys a decent stat right now, um, of the top five scorers in the conference, they're all averaging between like 12 and 15 shots a game. Josh Cunningham's averaging nine. Um, Yeah, he's like, he's like, you know, isn't he like top 20 in the, in the whole country in shooting percentage right now? Like fourth. Um, Yeah, I was going to say, he's unreal. So, you know, it's it's those kinds of things where it's like, 
I, you know, it, it's just kind of scratching your head because it's it's like we got guys, you know, like Trey Landers that you know he gives us good stuff, but what is he? He's like this six three bruiser that like can't play down low, but he's not a guard. And, and then you know we have Costa Santa Tacumpo. Um, so if you're familiar with the NBA, you know everybody knows about his brother Giannis, and, and he's very similar. You know, he's in his first couple of years of big ball, he's getting foul trouble a lot, but we can't seem to utilize his length properly. Um, he's not really threatening as a shooter, so you know teams tend to pack it in on him, um, and he hasn't really figured out how to get around people. So um, you know the the question that was asked, you know, going back was what does he say and and I think that's one of the reasons that we're frustrated is we can't seem to get an answer as to what is the identity of Dayton and consequently you know if I give you guys a reason why we're six and seven that's it right there yeah so you mentioned like that's that's interesting stuff right there is I'm just looking at the the overall stats and and where where you guys are shooting I'm almost like 45 percent of your shots this year and you kind of touched on this with the Josh Cunningham comment but almost 45 percent have been from three and, yep. you know, with a tempo that you guys play at, it just seems to me that that would somewhat indicate that uh, off of offensive possessions end up getting stalled. And, you know, this is, would happen a lot in the Kellogg era with with, with different um, half-court possessions where you just launch up threes at the, end of, at the end of the shot clock just to get a shot in play. Is that – and I haven't seen a ton of Dayton. Is that accurate? And my second part of that question is do you want to see – Anthony Grant start to push the tempo a little bit more and get someone like Anitakumpo, who has crazy length, and if he's anything like his brother, who's just a menace in the open court, um, you know, get him and some of these other guys involved a little bit more uh, in the fast break game. I mean, shit, I would love it, but I don't know if we're capable. Uh, yeah. You know, like nothing's <laughs> told me that we're capable to this point. Um, you're right, though. It, it's I, I I can't wait to link this out to people and to direct them right to this time right here. Because you haven't seen any, you know, you said I've seen little of Dayton basketball, but these stats indicate that we dick around a lot in offensive possessions and then we chuck up threes in desperation. That is our offense in a nutshell this season. And you didn't even have to watch games to understand that. So hopefully you guys are getting like a little bit of a picture as to why it's been so frustrating to get through this season because, you know, there's just nothing in place. and, And this is what we're left with. It's like, you know, we, we got this, you know, as far as I'm concerned, and I'm looking at the, you know, the big man in the A-10 right now, one of your best all-around players. And then as far as big men go, it's Tillman and Cunningham. Those are the two yeah. best big men. And anybody knows if you're playing VCU or if anybody watches them on TV, even if he didn't have that ridiculous yellow hair, he would be, you know, you'd be watching that guy the entire game. You know, he, he lights it up. <laughs> And I, I can't say that this, the same is true for Josh Cunningham. So, um, yeah, it's just been frustrating, man. It, you know, from top to bottom, I I can tell you guys with certainty on January 2nd that I did not think this team was going to struggle this much. I I would have bet anybody uh, a large chunk of money that we were not going to be 6-7. and seven. We were going to be significantly better than that. But, you know, here so, we are. So, just playing contrarian for a moment, if you recall in the offseason, and I'm not trying to toot my own horn here, but I – had a lot of doubts about the Staten team and I kept yeah. I kept saying to you very openly I was like I'm not I'm not trying to be a dick but like I'm looking at this team and I'm seeing four really talented guards and a talented head coach departing and a guy who is something of a retread maybe a quality one uh incoming that to me sort of was like and I, I said it repeat I was like I would not be shocked if we saw a total drop off from Dayton an aberration an aberrational season and when people were talking about Dayton as like four or five type team, I was like, ah, you know, I think some people were even throwing them around as three because there was that 
vac there was just that you know nothingness at the top where after the top two everybody's like well it could be anything and i think there was people yeah. who were like well you know dayton's been in the tournament four years in a row and they're still dayton. They'll, they'll figure it out they'll figure it out and i was just like well, i don't know it, it doesn't really seem like they will to me because they're really young and they have a new coach and it's really hard for new coaches to win with guys who aren't theirs and who are really young and so i'm not defending grant you know but i i do think that there are huge challenges to inheriting a team. And when you lost a core group of guys who, you know, were there for, for what opposing eight and fans felt like was absolutely forever in cook and Paul was Pollard in that group and Scoochie Smith and yeah, Scoochie. Yeah. I mean, there was all those dudes and, you know, and yes, like I think the kid Davis for you, Darrell Davis, like he got some nice minutes in the past. And I, I think I didn't quite realize that Cunningham would emerge this much. So you obviously have some talent, but, I guess my question would be, is it really that surprising when, when, you know, I I mean, it's, yes, it's surprising you lost to Duquesne in the opener that that should never happen. And that's, you know, and that you lost a pen at home, but you know, don't you think there's going to be some growing, you know, just to play devil's advocate a little bit, don't you think some of these things are kind of just the, the necessary growing or not necessary, but the inevitable growing pains of a coaching transition? Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And and I am, you know, I, you guys have read our site before. I think you understand that our stance is that, you know, we just try to be rational and, and realistic because, you know, I think a lot of people try to put on those rose colored glasses for the Flyers and Dayton a lot. Um, and people, you know, have a hard time being, you know, uh, realistically negative, I think is the, r- the right term. You, you mass fans have um, no trouble being realistically negative. <laughs> yeah, I know. yeah, it's like, oh, you guys know, I guess. But um, yeah, so, you know, what I can say is that we're kind of in this weird spot right now as a fan base where, um, and, and I just, you know, kind of said this earlier today when I was on the, the podcast with uh, the Bonaventure guys for this week, but and it's worth repeating. I mean, Dayton is coming through um, a period of, like success we've never seen. Um, you know, we've had kids now that have gone to school and graduated and seen nothing but four NCAA tournament appearances. So that's all they know, right? So we have this younger fan base now that's like, oh, well, Dayton basketball is just good. Like we're, we're a good team. That's who we are. And that's not who we are. You know, we get to the tournament like every now and then. When I was a freshman in 2008, 2009 season, that was our first tournament win since the year I was born in 1990. So it's like, you know, our success right now is an anomaly, not the norm. Um, and so I think that gassed a lot of people up to be like, okay, you know, Anthony Grant's just going to come in here and keep the train rolling and everything will be cool. And I was, you know, you brought up a good point. I, when we were going back and forth in the summer, I basically just said, I'm not really sure if they're going to be any good. And I'm not really sure if they're going to be trash either. So let's just kind of see how it plays out. But might have seen the writing on the wall a little bit sooner than I did. But again, like you said, losing to Penn at home and losing to Duquesne are like two unacceptable losses in my eyes. Just from where we are as a program, if we're still losing at the Palumbo Center, like we still have a long way to go. And that's not hyperbole. Like good teams don't lose at Duquesne. I'm sorry. They just don't. What's the, what's yeah. the attendance been like at, at the Palumbo? 
No, Palumbo is Palumbo's where Duquesne plays. You're talking oh, about a date, yeah, yeah. a date, yeah, yeah, yeah. At, UD, at UD Arena. It's my my fault. Um. Okay. So then that's the other aspect. Uh, we've gotten to the point where we have so many season ticket holders that UD can basically report a sellout any night they want. So right. they basically report a sellout any night they want. But um, I, I you know have a close friend that works in the arena, and he tells me that usually around eleven thousand are going through the turnstiles. Um, out of thirteen oh. five. That's so. Nice. That's still it's great. still unbelievable. Yeah, and, yeah that's and, still fantastic. And I actually, yeah. it's a perfect segue because I actually wanted to ask you just about the Dayton program in general. Sure. We'll, we'll get to the actual UMass Dayton breakdown, but I think it's helpful for our, our listeners to have a sense of kind of, you know, what other schools are like, what the, what the culture around those programs are, what it takes to have sustained success. And Dayton, in terms of attendance, I would I would say is not only the model of the Atlantic 10, Really, maybe the model in the country when you consider the way they pack that place relative to the quality of team they are. I mean, yes, they are good, but you guys were bringing in 12, 13,000 people when you were like a fringe NIT team. And I've heard that Dayton as a city is like the. I had a friend who worked, this is a while back, we worked in like a, in finance for a company that was looking into minor league like sports acquisitions basically. And he was, he told me basically that Dayton is, and I've read this elsewhere that it, for minor league, you know, baseball is like, has like a 190 game sellout streak or something. So there's something Dragons, about, Dayton, there's something about Dayton that, you know, attracts a ton of sports fans to, you know, quality, but not exactly major league quality. Whereas UMass struggles to get, you know, three or 4,000 people in the seat sometimes different exam, different, reasons for that and we can we could discuss them at some length but how is Dayton continually able to just generate this kind of passion in an era in which frankly college sports fandom is actually down nationally and attendance at you know arenas in power five conferences and the a10 I presume alike are you know is, is largely down what is it that you guys do to keep the culture of the program so strong and and just bang out that UD arena every night um, so I, you know, the easiest way to, to answer that, frankly, is, um, you know, it's the only show in town, you know, the Dayton Flyers are the team in town. If you play on the Dayton Flyers basketball team and you walk around town, people know exactly who you are. Um, and that's, you know, obviously some guys are six ten, but even if you're not, um, you know, people know who you are while you're on the team. And, and you know, a lot of guys stick around Dayton for, for that purpose, but, um, the, I rarely get this opportunity. You mentioned the Dayton dragons, their sellout streak right now is going 18 years strong. And they have sold out 1,242 consecutive games. And that I is said 190 because it was just an arbitrary figure. Um, that's 1, insane. 1,200. <laughs> for the Dayton Dragons. It's um, single A? Single A? They are the single A affiliate of the Cincinnati Reds. Yes. Jesus. So if, if, you know, that's just a little tidbit. It's not here nor there. Um, but yeah, great ballpark in downtown Dayton. Um, but anyways, back to the basketball team. Uh, you know, the reason that they... <clears throat> If I can get historical on you guys for a second, please, um, please. Yeah, the the reason that Dayton has seen this success in attendance is because, frankly, they saw the potential for an arena before it was a popular thing in college basketball and college athletics. Um, in the early '60s, the athletic department. Uh, went to the university and they said, we are going to build a huge basketball arena um, right across the river on the other side of our campus. And they got a lot of pushback for years. 
And finally, you know, they passed it and built the thing and it opened in 1969. And I mean, if you guys think back to nice, like, all the nice. big arenas, yeah, <laughs> nice. Exactly. Like it's the perfect year that I can always like reference. It's always so nice. Um, but you know, they opened this, this arena, um, in 69. And then after that, um, it, it just kind of took a life of its own. Like they, they kept selling it out right away. And, um, you know, nowadays, a lot of Dayton's success as a national program can be attributed to the fact that we went to the NCAA tournament in 1967. And then two years later, our athletic department had the foresight to say, hey, if we build this big arena, we're going to be way ahead of other athletic programs. Um, and, you know, as a kid from Pittsburgh, I lived right next to one of those programs that didn't have that foresight. And their name is Duquesne. And you guys obviously know where their basketball program went since the 70s. Um so, yeah, you know, it, it kind of started then um, and it's just ballooned into this thing. I mean, getting a, a season ticket in the lower bowl of UD Arena will cost you five to ten thousand dollars a year, at least it just to get like just to get like into the discussion. Donation. That's, that's the donation plus then the ticket. You got to buy the tickets. I mean, it's a sizable amount of money. Uh, me and my buddies have been giving this is the 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 first year that we decided we were going to give 500 bucks just to see what happened. And we moved up like three rows and over like one section. So now it's like, so you, so like you have, nosebleeds. so you have season tickets, even though you live in Chicago, but you sort of split them with your buddies and whatnot. Yeah. So we split our tickets because I mean, that's exactly what we're talking about. If I don't start to like, you know, move down the list now when I'm, I'm 27, I'm never going to get into the lower bowl before I'm 40 anyways. So it's like, I might as well, you know, start throwing some money at it now. And the lower bowl is like what? 5,000 seats. Uh, no, it's probably, so there's probably like three, six, maybe seven. Wow. It's that much. Doesn't on each side going upwards. So given what you're saying, what I'm hearing in a certain sense is, because those are numbers that UMass, I mean, even during the final four years would probably envy to be, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. And, you know, you talked earlier in the program about how Xavier and Wichita state and Gonzaga and maybe one other program were kind of the sort of the Dayton was a tier, a slight tier below them. And my, my question is given the level of donations you're talking about and given the arena that you bang out, which is, bigger than all of those places other than maybe Wichita State, uh, probably bigger than Wichita State too. Do you think you're shooting a little low, low in characterizing your program? I mean, do you th- why, why, I've, I've wondered, why isn't Dayton making a push to go to join the Big East or are they or should they? You know, I, I guess I always think Dayton is, is this rare fan base that kind of is pretty content with a certain level of not mediocrity, but, you know, a certain level of baseline quality when they have the resources and the fan support to the point where they could probably shoot a little higher. You basically just summed up why the Blackburn Review exists in like one sentence. We started to exist because we started, well, Blackburn, you know, so many years ago when I was actually like in school at UD when he started the website. And I, you know, think I've kind of done a good job of carrying this theme but the reason our website does well is because we're not afraid to just push the envelope and say hey this isn't fucking good enough you know we we bring all these people to the arena like we have this great program with this basketball tradition we've played in a national championship we haven't won one but we've played in one in the 60s you know we had all these we had a lot of great players come through 
why aren't we better? Um, and, you know, to be fair to everything that's been happening lately, Dayton has finally said they're going to spend millions of dollars renovating the arena. Um, they're going to put more club seats in. They're going to make it, you know, kind of a, a big time arena. Not that it isn't already, but, you know, it still has that old school feel to it because it was built in the 60s, um, which is great. And I think they're going to do a good job of preserving that. But yeah, you know, it continuously makes me angry as someone who's followed it their whole life. And, you know, my dad went to the university, so he's followed it, you know, almost his whole life. And it's, and a lot of people give the administration flack for not making a bigger push to try to get us into the Big East. I'm not going to comment too much on that because number one, I don't know what was involved in the process. And number two, I don't know if they did make a strong effort monetary or whatever. That's kind of the plight of the Dayton fan base, really, is that I think there's a lot of older people, you know, the red sweaters, as we call them, that have got. Yeah, they are complacent. so noticeable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, they got complacent years ago with saying, ah, you know, make the tournament every now and again and, you know, maybe get a win here and there. Um, and now, you know, we've got this younger fan base that's like energized and we're expecting to win. Um, you know, I'm kind of caught right in between of all that grumpiness and like joy. Um but uh, yeah, I mean, I really hope that Dayton takes this seriously to, you know, use these arena renovations <laughs> to to go to the next level. And and honestly, that's why people are going to be so critical of Anthony Grant because Dayton is at such a crucial point in our basketball program that if we miss this window of success, it might not come again for you know a while. And you, you well, where does that money go? That. I guess like if if yeah, that's what I was going to ask because like from a monetary monetarily perspective, like. I think Dayton probably trounces every other A10 team from what they're bringing in from a donation um, year to year. I mean, if there's five thousand people or whatever who are giving five or ten grand a year, I mean that alone plus, and that's just like donations to get seats. Then you got to pay. Then the gate revenues every night are banged out. I mean, it's not like you're paying a ton on seat licenses for your for your non scholarship football program. Like, where is the money going? Like, if if you have that much money coming in. I mean, what are you paying Anthony Grant, I guess? And like, if you're, you know, I mean, you, it seems like you can pay a coach 1.8, you know, 2.1, something like that. Is there, is there a resistance to, I mean, where's the money going? Um, you guys certainly don't have to quote me on this, but I was told uh, they offered Archie Miller north of $3 million a year. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. That makes to, sense. To stick, <laughs> to stick around. Now, again, you take that with a grain of salt. It's just what I've heard. They, I was told that they matched what Indiana gave him, which again was around that, that number. Yeah. Um, Anthony Grant, I, I want to say makes like 1.8 maybe or, or 2 million, something like that. I guess you I could, just you could get a better one. coach than Anthony Grant for 1.8 or 2 million. I'm just going to say that right now. What'd you say? You could get a better coach than Anthony Grant for $2 million a year. I agree with that. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I mean, um, Matt McCall makes like 750 and Mark Schmidt makes like 750, I've heard. So, yeah. I think, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're you're absolutely right. Um, I don't know who that guy is, but I know he's he's definitely out there. Um, you know, one thing you guys got to keep in mind, and you guys don't have to worry about this as much, but um, you know, Dayton being a private university, we don't usually get those things in black and white. Mm-hmm. And if we do yeah. get them in black and white, they're probably lies, anyways. Yeah. Um, you know, Dayton is just they're a they're a tight lipped university. We're a private institution. We don't have to release information in the way that VCU and UMass do. Um, 
And so consequently, we have to guess on a lot of this stuff. And, you know, I just don't spend too much time doing it. I, I know we have a lot of money from the basketball program. I know the entirety of our athletics department. What extent? I don't know, but I do know we're about to put, I think, 70 or $80 million into our arena. So, you know. That's a start. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. a nice start. That's a nice start. Um, I guess one last question before we get into the game and the predictions for the game. I always see Dayton Twitter. And by the way, I'm intrigued by Dayton Twitter because given how many fans you have at the arena every night, it doesn't feel, and maybe I'm wrong because I just don't follow that closely, it doesn't feel as robust as I would expect. Like UMass has a robust Twitter sphere and not exactly a robust in-at-game fan base. There's a variety of reasons for that. But it seems like Dayton, you have 13,000 fans and Twitter is like a little quieter, but maybe I'm just not following along. Yeah, that being said, oh no, you got it. I, yeah, I think I've already made that conclusion for you guys. So, who I said in a lower bowl, who is it primarily? Yeah, it's old guys, but also like you did say, there's this young, this younger, energized new alumni base too. So I'm wondering, like, are they out there, like in the you know mixing it up, or if VCU has tons of people, you know, I mean, yeah, they do, they do. Um, has, yeah, Bana, Bana has tons of people. It's just funny, like how certain Twitter spheres are, are a little less. And it's probably a bad proxy for assessing a fan base, but it's just I, I'd love to mix it up a little more with the Flyer Nation. <laughs> yeah, I would say there's like a thousand people, like you know, lurking in the shadows of Dayton Twitter. Um, not all of them are like lo- very vocal on Twitter. And I will say this about people: um, well, or we're not, you know, having a great year. The students could care less, and. And they like I get into them all the time because like every person that is like ahead of the student organization says that they're going to change the culture and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, it's like, that's everywhere no, in the country, everywhere in the country. There's no culture to change when Dayton's winning. When they have a big game, students will be there. When it's not a big game, they won't be there. That, that's that's cut and dry. But Twitter following is OK. But the reason is a lot of our fan base is older. So we. You know, we miss out on Twitter. Um, the younger crowd, we're starting to kind of pick up on Twitter, but I don't know. It, it, we're like you said, we have so many fans that there's just no way to like corral everybody into like one particular medium. That's a good. That's a good problem to have. But it does seem like you have students there. I mean, whenever I watch a TV game, it looks like students are packed behind the hoops. Is that? It's not actually the case. Um, well, if the students are on break, they'll put up a, like a red tarp and then they'll sell the tickets behind them general admission. So oh, that can be deceiving sometimes. Um, if the students are on break, there is probably less than 500. Always sit in the student section when they're on break because I'm like just old enough or like I can yeah, just yeah, blend yeah. in. But they, I sell, they, sell beer? they sell beer? Uh, our arena sells beer, but you can't have it in the student section. That's like the only place in the arena. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. so what, last thing. What is loud? L-O-W-D. I see you guys throw it around on Twitter all the time. I've been a little embarrassed to ask. What is loud? Uh, loud is something that uh, we started the Blackburn Review. Blackburn kind of started himself like years ago uh, just as something really stupid that honestly took off. And now it's our own special like word to describe the noise level at UD Arena. It's just loud. And, and what's funny is we've it's kind of been a mysterious thing. It's floated around. So Ali LaForce on uh, CBS Sports last year was like uh, down on the court and she interviewed some student. What does loud mean? And he literally had no clue. And it was just so satisfying. And the kid goes, uh, it just means that we're here to get the W. And, we're, and she goes, that's awesome. Back to you guys. We were like, that's, that's fantastic. 
yeah so i've had like so many kids come up to me just be like dude what the fuck is loud and i'm like exactly that's the point loud is just it's, <laughs> I like it's uds it's uds word and uh it's ours now sorry i like that that's I like great that. all right jumping into the game um i'm curious about your guard play because i see Luan pipkins as potentially being trouble for you guys with having lost so many guys from last year but you do still have is, is it darrell davis Durrell. Yeah, it's Daryl Davis, but on our website, it's Durrell. Okay. Yeah. So, Daryl Davis is pretty solid, but otherwise, in the backcourt, it seems like Pipkins could give you guys some trouble. And then up front, you know, you guys have some length and you have Cunningham. UMass has some size, too. I actually, you know, historically, UMass has, I mean, not on, at UD Arena, we suck, but we've often played you well even when we suck. So, that's why I'm like, oddly more confident this year i still think we'll probably lose because it's a road game we haven't won a single road game this year uh what are you looking at in terms of this matchup in particular um yeah it's, it's pipkins number one uh we just have not been able to stop basically anybody's best guard this season um and that's you know primarily the reason that duquesne beat us you know they have some good guards and you know we just couldn't stop them so you know that's number one uh, i think pipkins is what fourth or fifth right now in uh scoring in the conference right he's like he's averaging 18 plus a, a night he's been really really good yeah i think he was i think yeah. he was third last week i haven't checked it recently but yeah he's he's definitely top five he's been killing it yeah um so yeah I, you know i think he's gonna give us fits uh guards like that just have a, a tendency to come into ud arena and just light it up um you know, score 25, 30. Like I said, Jay Adams last year scored 35 in a loss, which was absurd. I think I was at that game. Um, yeah, I'm kind of worried about Pipkin's shooting. Um, Rashawn Holloway, I'm not really all that concerned with just because I don't think he's quick enough to really uh, challenge the game plan down low. Uh, Cunningham's just a quicker guy than he is, and that's just to say that, you know, he's not as heavy. Uh, I mean, how you know, big is quicker. Cunningham again? Uh, so he's six foot nine, and oh man, I don't know how much he weighs. I'll have to look that up. Oh, I, so I he's like up. a true back to the basket, old school college big man. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, see, he is six seven two thirty three. He's listed at. I believe he was a, a teammate, by the way, of uh, of Pipkins in AAU ball growing up. They both played for the Mac Urban Fire. I'm pretty sure. That's possible. Josh Cunningham was actually a teammate of Kyle Davis in high school here in Chicago. So, um, but uh, yeah, so, you know, Josh Cunningham, I think is going to have a good night against UMass, um, but it's going to come down to how much our guard score. You brought up Daryl Davis before um, <laughs> the first three years. He was kind of like this guy that just kind of came in. He played some good defense last year. Like sometimes he could shoot a three, but not really. And then this year he has just exploded. He's averaging 16 a game, which is not something that anybody in his fan base expected ever. He's shooting a ton. He's kind of like right now um, for, for whatever that's worth. And, and I don't think anybody expected it. So same point, Daryl Davis has scored zero in a game this year. So that's just kind of, you know, back to what we were talking about with Dayton. You never really know who's going to show up and score besides Josh Cunningham on a given night. And that's kind of our problem right now. So, yeah, I'm, I'm worried about Pipkins. Um, other than that, you know, I think from a UMass perspective, it's going to be tough for us to get some buckets. It's uh, it sounds so similar to Kellogg coach teams. I got I got to say, just when you talk about, you know, the, the, the length and the talent and the unsatisfactory results but periodically having nights where you put up a ton of points and kind of impress 
I empathize with what you're going through. I hope it, I hope it's not uh, several years that I think probably you guys have enough institutional supports in place that you'll always at least be a little higher than UMass was when, when UMass struggled, but let's get a, a score prediction and Cal, I'd love to hear your analysis of the game too. Uh, score prediction for me. Um, I'd have to say it's going to be a low scoring affair. Um, geez, I'm looking at the matchup right now. I think Dayton probably edges out a close one just because we're at home and we have had success at home. I can't believe I'm saying that. Oh God, I'm the worst. Uh, 67, 64 Dayton wins. Yeah. I was going to say right around the same lines, like a two or three point win for Dayton. Um, it's interesting because just, uh, Sully, just so you know, we, we, when we went to St. Bonnie's, there was some interesting quotes from McCall and some of the players, uh, the UMass players after the game, just saying that they hadn't really experienced, um, an atmosphere like that yet on the road. And that immediately sent off red flags for me just being like, all right, well, we're going to Dayton next weekend. And also, you know, Bonnie wasn't even that exactly. loud. Exactly. That's what I mean. It's like, on campus. It was no it, like I think McCall sort of said that. I didn't hear players say that, but oh, I don't Pipkins, doubt did, but. Pipkins said the same thing. He he had said that we he said we can't lose our composure when we're on games. We gotta play our type of game. And I was like, man, that wasn't even a tough road game. Um so yeah, I think it's a I think it's like a three to five point win for Dayton. I just UMass is a completely different team on the road. Um and I'll say it's in the sixties too. Um it's somewhere in the mid sixties, like sixty seven, sixty two or something something like that. Yeah, I think uh, in a lot of the attendance and how fired up people are is going to depend on if we get this Bonnie's win. Because um, if we get yeah. if we beat the Bonnie's tomorrow night, it's going to be a it, you know people get their expectations up and like all right, you know, let's go to the game Saturday and see what happens. Um, but if we lose the Bonnie's, you know, it's a noon game in Dayton. Um, I, I can't imagine the atmosphere is going to be like all that raucous. I mean, the, the students aren't even back, so. You know, I hate to say this because you guys are like, oh, man, you guys get so many people. But if if we're not having a good year and the students aren't there, you might as well be playing in front of 5000 people. I, I mean, it just does not get that loud because, you know, that's what it is. So my prediction in this one in typical UMass and frankly, a 10 more broadly fashion. I'm so much I know it's a little bit of a cop out, but I, t- I so much want to look at the results of what happens in Wednesday's games for both teams, because I think UMass and Dayton are similar just in terms of, you know, new coaches, you know, implementing culture. And I think with UMass, you know, we've seen when they kind of get things going and they start buying in, they've, they've rattled off a bunch in a row. And then when they struggle and they're sort of questioning the process a little, and they're, you know, realizing that they kind of are undermanned and only have, really seven scholarship guys who are playing, it can be, you know, it can be a little ugly. And so I, I'm so curious to see what happens to uh, on, on on Wednesday night and just how the, both teams respond. I ultimately think, though, if, if you gun to my head, yeah, it's probably a Dayton win just because Holloway is going to get in early foul trouble against Cunningham, and that's really, really going to set us back. If he could somehow avoid it, I think UMass could actually pull an upset, particularly with the way Malik Hines has been playing. He was six or seven against Bonaventure, 16 points. He's a really solid, big, athletic, can defend a Cunningham type. But I just see early foul trouble, as it has so many times this year, plaguing us and Cunningham kind of going to work and ultimately Dayton pulling away with like a 70 to 63 type win. So that would be my, my take on it. So well, any I can thoughts? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, well, I can tell you guys that no Dayton fan is taking UMass lightly after last year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was at that game. I, that was, that was probably the best one of our, of our season last year. 
Oh, absolutely yeah. it was. Yeah. I think, you know, you guys are going to be super interesting just to people around Dayton in general because I don't feel like people how our program is viewed by other teams in the league. You know what I mean? Like, like yeah. Dayton people aren't yakking it up with UMass fans on the regular, you know? And, and so it, it's kind of nice to hear people be like, you know, we would love to get 10,000 because if Dayton gets less than 10,000, oh my God, like sound the horns, like call the mayor, <laughs> everything is going to shit, you know? Um, and, we and struggle think- to get 3,000 these days. I mean, for Georgia, we brought in like 4,700 and that's like with fans starting to get excited again. Late in conference on a weekend in a big game, if we're good, we'll get, you know, 6,500. And then if we're really good like tournament caliber we will sell out a weekend conference game but yeah there's a variety of reasons for that in terms of where we're located in proximity to our actual alumni and it's but the reality is what dayton does attendance wise is not only the envy of umass fans not only the envy i think of many around the atlantic 10 i think it's the envy of basically every mid-major and many many high majors around the country and that's not me blowing smoke I, i don't particularly love your fan base the red sweater thing i like to take shots at them once in a blue moon but in sure. terms of raw volume and numbers, like there's, it's it's the envy of almost anyone in the country. Yeah, and, and you know, hopefully, I've explained kind of how that took shape, and it took you know took a couple decades to really take shape like that. But um, you know, what I can tell people is that if you do make the the trip to Dayton, you know, it's not Amherst. It actually you know is a pretty sizable city. I think it's about three hundred thousand people. Um, and just being like a small city instead of a small town and having it be like the perfect market where a college team could get away with just being the only show in town. You know, when you think about it, there's only so many cities where you can get away with that. Um, and cities, not towns like Tuscaloosa, Auburn, those are towns, you know? Um, but you know, Dayton is just this kind of thing that in Western Ohio that needs basketball because Ohio state football and Ohio state kind of looms over the state and, and they were able to carve out their own kind of piece of, of college basketball so many years ago. So, um, you know, if you, if you do come to a game at UD arena, there definitely will be at least, you know, 11,000 people there. Um, I, I can't imagine you'll be treated poorly unless you act like an asshole, but you know, some people like to act like assholes. How tough is a ticket to come by? I feel like as a road fan is, you know, just, um well it depends man for a lower bowl seat you gotta do some hunting um you know maybe know some people here and there uh you know lower bowl tickets sometimes will pop up on StubHub, but only like maybe 10 or 20 and then you know the other ticket sites again another like 10 or 20 so you kind of have to be diligent in like finding them uh upper bowl tickets you can find pretty much anytime there's a lot of guys like me um a lot of young alumni that have bought tickets just so they can start you know, paying their dues that sell them for every game. So um, in that regard, if you want to sit in the nosebleeds, no problem. If you want to sit in the lower bowl, you're going to have to do a little bit more work. It's it's kind of difficult. All right. Well, take that into account for some of the diehards out there who may be making the trek this weekend. Hope you've already found your tickets. And uh, there was there has been some talk on UMass Twitter about maybe getting a bus, you know, out there for the next time UMass faces Dayton. Uh, anyway... Yeah. It's Thanks for coming on the show. Let us know if there's uh, anything we can do to support the Blackburn Review. Last chance now to plug anything. Check them out. Sully my good name on Twitter. And good luck this – well, good luck tomorrow night against Bana. Although maybe not good luck because I gave that five-star pick to the kid. And definitely, yeah. not, definitely not good luck on uh, Saturday, but good luck the rest of the year. And I hope things work out for you guys. I really do. It's good for the – I think the, the league needs a strong Dayton. 
Yeah. And I, and I think that's kind of where we positioned ourselves. So, uh, you know, as always, I love sharing my insights to, uh, to people that might not know about our program. Um, you know, I started doing this a while ago, just for that exact reason to kind of talk people off the ledge of Dayton hoops and then share with other people that, you know, we got kind of a good thing going here. So, um, yeah, you know, with that, uh, uh, we're in action tomorrow night against the Bonnies on national TV. So I'm, uh, I'm kind of hyped up for that. Hopefully we can steal a win at home. So thanks again, guys. Yeah, thanks so much, man. Thanks for coming on. Enjoy it. Okay, so... Tomorrow night, well, we're recording this on Tuesday evening, so tomorrow night for us, but probably this evening for those of you listening, because this podcast will probably drop in the morning, UMass comes back to the Mullen Center to host a struggling and very young George Mason team. George Mason is coached by Dave Paulson, a guy with some familiarity uh, with Western Mass. He is a former player and coach at Williams College, Division Three Williams up in Williamstown. I used to see him uh, at the height of the Amherst-Williams basketball rivalry in the early 2000s. He was a really, really good coach and still is. He then went on to Bucknell and he is now taking over. George Mason was extended uh, into the 2021-2022 season after a strong and surprising second year last year where uh, Mason overachieved. But they have struggled thus far this year. They're very, very young. Uh, They just got beat by 19 against Rhode Island in their first conference game. UMass opens at this point as an eight-and-a-half-point favorite. Frankly, I had thought it would be a little bit more like four, four-and-a-half, but I guess because UMass has been so solid at the Mullins this year, uh, Vegas sort of sees this as a little bit more favorable in terms of uh, UMass is likely chances of winning. What's the way? What's the line? I actually haven't seen it. It's eight and a half. Eight and a half. Mason's. I mean, I, I can get into this a little bit. I think that's more. George Mason's been really not great. Um, they haven't. No, they've sucked. I mean, they've yeah. definitely they've definitely sucked, but they don't suck. If that makes sense. I mean, they're they're not good, but they have players that are quality and Sir, they, yeah, serviceable players for sure. Serviceable players, they're young. They beat UMass twice last year. Paulson runs a pretty, you know, runs some pretty complicated stuff. And I think with really young guys, it just takes a long time to learn that. The reality is one of the things I think Matt McCall has done well this year is, you know, he's put in a lot of little wrinkles and sets, but he's not completely overhauled everything and, and not completely put in his stuff. Uh, you know, he, he's worked with what he has to some degree and he's not overcomplicated things from an offensive just, uh, you know, structural perspective, which I, I think is, is probably smart. I think Paulson, because he's been extended through 2022 and he's got a new group, he's probably trying to do a little a little more right now. Um, and But the reality is, again, I, I've said it all year, UMass is just not good enough to think that they can struggle and not hit shots and beat a Atlantic 10 foe that's, you know, not – Fordham at home or something, right? right? I just don't think so. You know, Paulson can coach. We lost them twice last year. Um, and real quickly, actually, you know, I'm going to bring pull something up as we're talking. But Cal, I, I mean, let's get your thoughts on this one because I've been pretty generic thus far. Yeah, no, no, uh, it's they're an interesting team because 
you know, the, the, and I, listen, I don't, I haven't t- seen any George Mason games this year. I'll be totally upfront about that, but I do rely, like I, I do, I trust advanced stats. I think stats um, like Ken Palm in particular, Ken Pomeroy, who runs his own website uh, can tell a lot about a team and they aren't, they aren't kind at all to this George Mason team. Um, granted they played, Maybe the hardest out of conference schedule. Uh, yeah, they played, they played some good teams. They have pretty good teams. I mean, they have, they played one, two, three, four top forty opponents already, um, and that's. I mean, I would be hard pressed to think that there's another A ten team that's played four top forty. May, opponents. Maybe Rhode Island because they yeah. played. Yeah, but yeah, uh, but either way, I mean, they played a tough schedule. They beat everyone they were supposed to beat. Um, they had a tough loss. I mean, it was at home to William and Mary, so that's probably their worst loss. Um of the year. And that's, you know, a team that's ranked on current Ken Palm is, you know, 188 out of like three fifty. And they've been bad on the road. Uh, I think they're like one and five in the road. They beat maybe James Madison. That's about it. Who sucks. Yeah. Uh, you're right. Correct. They, they beat James Madison. James Madison is not good. It starts with, as Libby said, they don't play a single senior. Um, I think that's significant. Uh, they had a really good freshman class come in a couple years ago. Um, and I think even last year they had, you know, some impact freshmen come in. Um, but Otis Livingston's there, really dynamic point guard. Um, and he j- everything kind of just runs through him. I mean, he's decent, you know, decent three-point shooter. He's, he's like good. 30, he's a good point guard. He's a really, yeah, he's a really good player. I, I think he I was like all, his game. It feels like he's been there forever. Yeah, and right, exactly. And I think he was all a 10, like 13 preseason. I might be wrong about that, but um, he's a good player. And, and so if you if you can stop him, uh, I, I think that's that'll disrupt a lot of things. So Pip, you know, Pip's defense, which I think – Kind of yeah, comes and, he's and not, goes. He's not terribly explosive. This kid, right. he's like very solid. He, exactly. He kind of reminds me, if I recall, he kind of reminds me of, and this will this will be one for the older crowd. He kind of reminds me of if Jonathan Depina was really really good. Um, <laughs> that's he, he was a guy who came uh, after the final four years as South Boston yeah. high school kid with Monty Mack and. He was like a perennially disappointing player at the time because people had such high super, expectations. Wasn't he super, super highly touted, right? Coming out of uh, yeah, he was highly touted. He was just kind of small. He, he's kind of one of these guys, you know, who could get in the lane. He was kind of a sturdier but short point guard. Um, you, you you know, but didn't have the quickest release. And and but so this guy's like a better version of that, like a really good version of that. He's Anthony Anderson is a little bit similar. Who played? Yeah, in the I think, well, yeah. The, Livingston, saving, the saving grace in the lap this year. Super, just fundamental. What Livingston is. Um, yeah, but yeah, they have a. They're they're awful at shooting threes. I mean, they're only shooting thirty percent. I mean, it's, it's that's basically where right around where UMass was last year. Yeah. Um, you know, they're decent, decent defensive team. Um, but it's really been their offense that has that has plagued them this year. I mean, they have. You know, bottom third offense in the country, um, and they, you know, granted they've they've and it kind of goes back to the fact that they played a really hard schedule. Um, they played some terrible teams, but they've also, you know, again, and not only just the the four top forties, they played Georgia, uh, Georgia Southern is ranked in the top one hundred, and also Fresno State is ranked in the top one hundred. So it's like and Penn, they played Penn State and Penn, uh, yeah, the four top forties are Penn State, Rhode Island, uh, Louisville, and Auburn. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, they've, yeah, they've played a tough schedule. So it's, 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 it is one of those situations where I think you're right, where the numbers are going to look really bad for them because they've won the games they're supposed to win, but they've played really, really bad in the games they're supposed to lose. Um, so it, it is a game where, you know, UMass is at home. They're obviously, um, 
you know, much, much better team at home than they are on the road. But I expect them to win this game. They need to win this game. Uh, but it's no – I mean, there's no such thing as a sure win. It's kind of a must squad. win if you want to be on that 9-9 nine and nine trajectory we talked about last week. Yeah, definitely. But, you know, the reality is the month and a half ago we were saying it would be fine if we won like five games in conference. So we, there is that thing, that that voice in the back of my head that's tempering me. Yeah. I would also know, I mean, a, a, you know, a source of mine, I don't want to get, I don't want to act like I'm too big time, but someone I trust in, is fairly in, intimately connected to the collegiate basketball world is, was making a point to me at one point that Paulson, whose X's and O's are, you know, beyond repute, he's very, you know, very well regarded in that, that sense, is ultimately a guy who has been successful in the NESCAC, you know, with Amherst College and Williams and them, and then in the Patriot League, which is very, it's sort of its own unique thing. And, and he just doesn't have, and it still isn't quite accustomed. The knock is that he's not quite adept at recruiting sort of the three star and above type kids that you need right. to win at this level. And it's a, it's a little bit like Davidson has that problem some years, but they always at least have two kids who are like really, really, really good. And then a bunch of role players. I think he doesn't quite have that. And, you know, you saw with him losing out on, you know, indications of this with him losing out on Trey Wood, the point guard who's coming to UMass next year. It doesn't, that, that'll be, that'll be the, the you know, ultimate determinant of whether or not he sticks around there for the long haul. But I wanted to bring up something real quick. I, I reached out to Mason Fanatic on Twitter, who's a really good follow. And he'll, we're going to have him on the show, um, hopefully, when UMass plays down there later in the year. Uh, but his, and he's actually going to be at the game tonight, tomorrow night. So if you guys uh, know him on Twitter, reach out and say hello. Uh, he says I asked him for some basic thoughts, and you know he was really I was really fortunate enough for him to send along some interesting insights. And he says Mason's main problem is a lack of depth and experience, which are compounding factors. He said with only th- eight scholarship players, sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Uh, two juniors, two sophomores, and four freshmen. There's nobody to step up if a few guys have an off night. But at the same time, they don't have the experience and maturity to be consistent players. And our two juniors, Livingston and Gray, I think it's Grayer. Um, Jay, I forget his first name, but he's actually been, he's another guy who feels like he's been there forever. He's really solid. Yeah. Uh, Grayer are being ridden so hard that maybe lowering their productivity. He notes that all eight guys have moments that wow you, but there's a lot of collective bad in between those moments. Um, and unfortunately, you know, there have not been many significant injuries. The patients were higher before two other sophomores, um, one kid from in August and another in early November, quit the team. Uh, I think he, he sort of thinks that, you know, he hoped with the talent they had, they'd be, they'd be good this year. But the reality is that required everything to go right and they need more seasoning. So not unlike UMass. In Quitting the team, that is like a bit of yeah. a red flag right there. Yeah, but, you know, when you're trying to, you know, look, we're going to see something like that in the offseason at UMass. I mean, I don't, I don't want to oh, yeah. oh, too much, but it, it. it's, that's the reality. Um, and, you know, he's very demanding. Paul's a very demanding coach and that shit happens. But the point is, it's not dissimilar to UMass. I just think UMass probably has better athletes that, you know, that, that McCall inherited. I think guys like Pipkin, you got to remember Pipkins and, and Baldwin and, and Holloway, you know, those were, those were pretty heavily recruited dudes. And so there's similarities here, but UMass just has a little bit more talent. And then you combine it in Pierre and what he's done this year and UMass should win the game. But I think UMass is kind of the median in the scheduling of Duquesne, uh, excuse me, of George Mason thus far where they've played 
a bunch of really good teams, a bunch of shitty teams. They haven't really played a bunch of UMass type teams where yeah. they're sort of in between. And so it's an opportunity having played good teams. They're, they're just, they just got drilled at Rhode Island and now they're probably didn't go back to campus. So they had a few days to kind of get their bearings and, you know, it's a game that concerns me. They, frankly, they all do because that's fucking UMass. UMass should win the game, and I'm going to say they will win the game, but it'll be close 71-67. Oh, so you got George Mason covering. Um, yeah, oh, I definitely get to George Mason cover for sure. I would not touch that line with a 10-foot pole. Um, I w- I'm, I'd probably say literally right around the eight-point mark, like a 72-64 type of win um, for UMass. I just – there's too much th- – it's just – you know, I'm just looking at these numbers. I just can't see how Mason's going to be able to put up enough points where UMass has really, frankly, shot the ball really, really well at the Mullins Center. Yeah. Um, but I just say I don't know if how Mason's going to be able to put up the points in order to win this game unless UMass just – Completely goes cold. Um, so yeah, I think uh, I think another I think a first eight ten one of the year for, for the minimum. All right, beautiful. It's time for Sam the Mailman. Your UMass Athletics mailbag updates. Okay, let's go to the mailbag. Our good friend in New Jersey, Zach is God. He asks, do you see UMass sweeping any of their two-game series in the Atlantic 10? Well, let's look at the two. We play Rhode Island twice, I would say no. We play Dayton twice, I would say no. We play St. Joe's twice, I would say no. We play LaSalle twice, I would say Maybe, although they looked pretty good in their opener against Travis Ford St. Louis team and beat them by 20-something. So I'm going to probably say no there. And then our fifth is against – who's our fifth that we play twice? Mason. So there's a chance that we beat Mason on the road, yeah. Um, but I, I, I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no. I think we, we split with, frankly, all of them except maybe URI but we don't sweep any or we get, or we split with, we definitely split with all of them, including URI and then don't sweep any, you know, I don't know. Cal, what about you? Uh, yeah, I, I just went, you know, I, I just went into a, well, actually prior to our interview, um, I did a little bit of bashing on George Mason. I, I think, I think we, I think we'll, I think we'll pull one of them off. It'll either be Dayton or George Mason. Um, but I think we'll Dayton, pull one of them. Really? Wow. Okay. Okay. All right. So, we have our next question from Scott Perkins. I believe he's in the Worcester area, but he always talks about being in Cape Cod, so I'm not totally sure. Big UMass fan. He says, how do you feel – he goes by UMass JSP on Twitter. He says, how do you feel about putting a front line of Mount Holloway, Baldwin, and Hines on the floor? Go big, and anyone who comes down the lane gets hammered. Good rim protection. So very interesting question because if you – go back to the first episode of this show maybe maybe second episode or maybe just me on twitter i don't remember we we talked no we definitely talked about this and i i was pushing it and i had heard from some people close to the program i think that that you know in the offseason that you know there was some talk that the way this team was going to win was to be the best offensive rebounding team in the country and just 
go at the glass and just get a ton of offensive boards. I am a proponent of it. Now, you look at what happened in the actual season and the emergence of Carl Pierre and frankly, CJ being, you know, as much as he can frustrate me at times because he has the ball in his hands too much. He's been really solid as a, as a guard. And, and, Pipkin, and Pipkins being all everything has rendered the need for that approach moot. But I think we saw against St. Bonaventure when Pipkins is on the bench or when you can't really go small or when you have to go small and you don't do that, it's pretty ugly. And so there are moments where I'm saying, you know what, if we get Bonaventure again in the Atlantic 10 tournament and you have to throw everything at the wall and see what sticks, why not go with your three bigs plus Pierre and Pipkins and just, you know, have, have Pierre and Pipkins shadow their two guards and then just kind of throw three bigs at their, you know, six, six, you know, small forward, power forward and, you know, six, eight center. Why not? I actually would love that, but you got to be in the game in order to do it because you can only, and you can only do it for so long because those guys are going to get gassed. But I would have love to, to see it. You'd, you'd have to, you'd have to play a zone on defense to do it. Two, three, I just eight. go with a two, three. Yeah, it would have to be that. I don't, I'm not a big proponent of it. Honestly, I think, I think we talked, I think we talked about this in like episode two. It just, it, I don't, I, I think you give up a lot defensively when you don't have a unique McLean or a CJ Anderson in the game, um, there's always that either third guard or somewhat of a wingman who is going to have Chris Baldwin on him, and, or, or um, uh, either Chris Baldwin or Malik Hines on him on the wing. And I just, I don't think that's a formidable matchup for UMass. I just think they'd get toasted eventually. Um, but I mean, a bad shooting team, right? Like a George Mason, right? Where they're not shooting the three terribly well. Or a Dayton, which I don't believe, I think our guest told they weren't shooting the three terribly well and they have a little bit of size. Like, why not overwhelm them with length and, and, and you know, frankly, girth for, yeah. for, for a two, three, four-minute stretch at some point and just throw an interesting wrinkle into things, you know? Yeah, I don't mind that. I just think, it. you know, when you go back down on offense, right, you have Chris Baldwin who, you know, has shown that he has the ability to hit the three, but he would he would have to be your three-man. So then you're playing with Malik and Holloway inside. And how much is Baldwin's guy able to help off of him and be able to crowd the paint and just make things stuffy on the interior? I just... I don't know. I, I can definitely, and what you're saying is is not ridiculous. I, I uh, because if you do it for a, a, a three to four minute stretch, you know that's uh, God, that's like ten percent of the game. So it's like you know at the end of the day, why not throw it at somebody? Um, I just I have doubts that it would that it would ultimately be um, successful. Or what about? I mean, Cal. What about if you have, let's say. Just at least stretches where the two bigs play together more. I mean, they both started. I believe they both started on Saturday. They did. They didn't, yeah. they didn't end up playing alongside each other very much. I mean, Holloway only played eleven minutes, but I, I do like the idea of having all three of them. And frankly, I liked our starting lineup in that game. I liked having the two bigs and mm -hmm. then Hipkins, Anderson. So I'd like to at least see more than two. And I think sometimes in Atlantic Ten play, when we're when we're going with four guards, if if we're not shooting well all of a sudden you're losing a lot because we saw that in the moments where, you know, there were a few moments there where McLean that, you know, basically at six, one was playing a, a sort of a three, a hybrid three, four role. And yeah. just, you know, guys were just, it was, it was, it was, you know, guys had six inches on it. It just wasn't we fair. Went super. There was a couple moments in that game. We went super small. We went super small. And I, you know, I was kind of like, I don't know. And sure enough, every, it kind of was disastrous.
but anyway, that, there's bigger thing. You're right. There's probably bigger fish to fry in, in the grand scheme of things. So Jesse Allen, the real Jay Allen, good friend of the show in Jersey as well, I believe. He says, which will happen first, a UMass tournament win or nuclear war? Well, based on <laughs> based on when we are taping this, the reality is Trump and Kim Jong-un, you know, that could happen any day now. So I'm yeah, going I've got to my say, bunker. I've got my bunker ready to go. Like, it, it, if we had to eliminate this, like, just stop this podcast. I mean, I, I'm, I'm ready to just. Where are we going, by the way? I mean, I have some, I, some, you know, preliminary ideas, but I, you know, I hopefully one of our listeners has, has, you know, sort of is, is posted up in like Idaho with a, with a place for us to go because oh, I was thinking only in New York would be a great, great spot. I, I think I'd rather die in nuclear war than go to only. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. Uh, the like, thing is, the know, proximity of Olean to New York City worries me a little bit because if that's where North Korea is going to go, I mean, who knows? Olean, it's like 14 be. hours. Don't worry. You're fine. <laughs> yeah, that's um, true. That's a good point. Um, well, yeah, in this, all seriousness, a nuclear war would hit – North Korea would hit the West Coast first, right? So maybe yeah, I think that's uh, where they play would live on for a little. But the question yeah, is Yeah, all of a just, sudden, UMass's chances of making the tournament improve drastically. If nuclear war means like launching a missile head of some sort, I think nuclear war happens first. Now, if it means like a missile successfully striking the continental 48, I think we'll somehow manage to stave that off in UMass. If if those are your parameters, it's already happened because North Korea has been like launching tests for years now. So like so striking and let's say killing upwards of 100,000 people. Um, I think that somehow I just have enough for, for no real reason, have enough faith in humanity that we'll, we'll stave that off for a bit yeah, I and so. UMass will hopefully make the tournament and win a game next year. And then like in the final year of the Trump administration, like we probably get that nuclear war anyway. So yeah, we got mid do we got mid season, uh, or mid season. <laughs> we got what a midterm elections coming up. Trump's Trump's gone in a year anyway. No, so we're, I, we're I think fine. he's going to make it through, but that's a different yeah. answer. All right, yeah, we let, don't need to get into that. <laughs> let, let's see. One more question. PJ Stevens, the great PJ Stevens, the PJ Stevens, says, would you like to see the Atlantic 10 expand to 16 teams? Which two schools would you add? So my thing with expansion Ooh. is it's all about who you add. You know, if you add two quality teams, absolutely, I'm fine with that. It's good for the league. I think it's, it's, it's good for everyone involved. If you add two shitty teams, no, I'm not, a, I'm not for that. So... Uh, I'm all about adding quality this, to the league, and you know if that means expanding, great. But I think that I would frankly rather see. Well, I was going to say like I, I'm I'm pleased the way Duquesne is turning things around because that's just been such a moribund shithole program for so long that it's really encouraging to see them actually waking up and and doing some things. But I would rather cut like in general the LaSalle, like a LaSalle and a Duquesne and add, say, mm, I don't know, Siena and, uh, Oh man, I wish you had given me this question. Cause I, I could have gone like old dominion is a yeah, really that's a, good, that's an a really good basketball program, but they also have the conference USA for football. So they probably wouldn't, this is a really interesting debate. Cause like I would on, I would be pretty in favor for Vermont. Um, no, Vermont can't. No, no, you don't just because just because no, Vermont's how. appealing in that in that like Vermont is appealing in that they've had success in a small league. I get it, but the truth is like their recipe for success is yeah. not. No, you're right. Suited to 
it's a they yeah. play in it in a little like and they play in like not a charming old it's gym. A they play in gym. like a gym. They just play in a straight up gym. Yeah. Like there's no commitment to facilities. It's not easy to recruit kids to. to um, no, to, you're right. Do we even have any other questions? It doesn't appear we have any really good questions anyway. Right. So I'm good. Fuck it. Let's call it a night. Sorry if I missed your question. And go UMass. Let's hope we're coming back here two and zero next week. I'd say there's a twenty five percent chance we win two games and like a 75 percent chance we win one. So yeah, I think it's I think it's likely we're one on one coming next week. All right, peace, gang. All right, love y'all. <laughs>